me at Jello, Jello. You had me at Jello. You had me at Jello. Oh, you had me at Jello. Hello, everybody. Five o'clock on a Friday. You know what that means. Time for Chell Chat. It's time to put down what you were doing momentarily and and uh, stop even accessing the resources that you had me at Chello or at Lindsay Patterson's uh, website as well. And just focus in on another Chello Chat interview where each time we get a different insight, a different perspective on all things Chello, Chello playing, Chello teaching, ways to think about Chello. So I, I already gave it away. As you know, now from for this week, my guest is Lindsay Patterson. And uh, Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really doing very well. Thank you. Would you start by telling anyone in our audience about yourself and just even what, how did you get where you are and, and what drew you to music or to cello in the first place? Absolutely. Uh, so I started piano when I think I was six because my brother was doing it so <laughs> I, I had to also do that because um, whatever he can do I can do you know one of those <laughs> so I started there and then uh, in fourth grade where the string program uh, begins in the Sheboygan school system you know the teacher brought in all of our options I don't remember why, but I came home with that cello circled and uh, I was born into a family of amateur clarinet players. Uh, my brother also took up clarinet and my dad plays piano quite well. And they were like, oh, okay. So I, uh, I just picked up. I was the only cello who signed up that year. So it was a lonely journey at first. I think I uh, got into lessons after sixth grade, uh, and that was that was great uh, to actually like get like some some good good instruction. And I joined the youth symphony in seventh grade, which was just so much fun. I think that's where I uh, kind of am at my happiest, was just being able to be immersed in a, a symphonic setting. And then I actually didn't decide until my junior year of high school that I was going to potentially go into music. So kind of definitely late for most people. I'd initially maybe wanted to do a double major. And then at some point I was like, no, we're going all in. We're doing we're doing cello. This is it. It feels right. Um, I think every musician who's chosen that path just feels that at some point. So I uh, started my studies at Carthage College, um, which ended up, I mean, a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience while I was there. It was only for two years because it was kind of like a big fish in a small pond at that time. So there wasn't too much challenge, and I love a good challenge. <laughs> so I ended up transferring to UW-Milwaukee to finish my undergrad uh, and I was just set on being a performer. Um, I was kind of told while I was finishing my undergrad that maybe I wasn't set up to be a performer, which was just catastrophic to me. I was just, it just shook me to the core. And I was like, oh, I, my whole life plan is kind of 
um, pushed off. So luckily, I crossed paths with Scott Cook, who was the pedagogy instructor at UW-Milwaukee for years. Fantastic, fantastic instructor. And for the first time, I heard the terms cello pedagogy. It had never in like, I didn't know it existed. So I audited a class with him still as an undergrad. And I was like, whoa, I was like, there's, there's something here for me. Uh, so then I looked at master's programs for that. And I ended up meeting Carol Tarr out in Colorado, uh, who is a great Suzuki pedagogue, of course. And um, I just kind of made me really look into Suzuki as a teaching method. A lot of the master's programs, you know, you get certified and you get your diploma. Um, Milwaukee didn't have that. So I wanted to make sure that I uh, went into that. But before I could start my master's, um, I and my now husband were actually hit by a car in a crosswalk. So not to get too dark, but it, it did it shattered my left humerus. So it was, I have like a huge reconstruction, but weirdly as awful, as awful as that sounds, um, came out of it fine after it got repaired. And it actually allowed me to redevelop my whole playing technique. So it was weird. It was like a blessing in disguise. So I could, I reformulated because I had enough time in between to get rid of those poor habits. My body forgot them. And I was like, this is an opportunity. So um, with Scott Cook's help, I, I got reset into playing, um, ended up being a great thing. But so I was allowed to go to school. I didn't even know if they'd let me show up with my arm in a sling for my master's program. It was wild. It was wild. Um, everything turned out to be fine. So I did my master's and then in between in the summers, I would go and get Suzuki educated in, uh, with the Chicago Suzuki Institute and met so many wonderfully inspiring performers as well as pedagogues. Um, and so I kind of found my niche through that and be able to reform my playing that I could not only become a teacher, but also a performer, even though at one point I was told that couldn't be possible. So I... I'm very happy with that balance that I've achieved. It's it's been great. Wow, wow, that's excellent. I'm curious if you had double majored, what was the other major going to be? I wanted to be a book editor. All right. Yeah, so oh. I want to go into. I guess that would have been English, and, and then some finagling in there. Wow, that's curious. Uh, last week's Karina Voli, the interview. Karina was talking about the need for attention to detail. And of course you can't be an editor without that among other things. And yeah. I mean, do you find that that kind of just real heightened perception detective work plays a component in your playing and teaching? Absolutely. I used to be the worst practicer. Mm -hmm. I don't think I really, like I, it, it never, I just would play. Uh, but then after you know, all my studies and uh, all the experiences, my favorite thing is puzzling out how to make a passage work. And I just love to sit there and I like end up talking to myself. So sometimes my students are like, 
are you know, are you okay? And I'm like, no, it's a process. It's a puzzle, it's an exciting puzzle. And they're very concerned about me, but I, uh, I think that's, that's the best. How can you formulate the left hand? So it works well. What do you, can you change in the Boeing variations that, that for me is, I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. And I, I love that you point that out because, um, I mean, Bruce Uchimura, who teaches over at uh, Western Michigan, he was, I mean, it was like, I've heard this, of course, from other people, but it's just the way that he would say it. And he said it, you know, kind of several times, just like the key to really a lifelong steep trajectory of advancement is to love the process of practicing. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but, but that is one way to find a, a fascination with the process. Like people who can't wait to open up the paper and do a crossword or a Sudoku puzzle or something like, what's the next thing I can solve? That's an interesting. And so, and you, you then ever since have had a uh, successful, both performing career and teaching career. Let's talk about the, the teaching some more. One of the things I, as you may know from this series, I just kind of like the focal point in a way is inspiration and motivation. And we've all had students who either perennially have a hard time getting themselves to practice or just occasionally need something to get over a particular hump. What are some of your favorite go-tos for inspiring students to not just to practice more, but to enjoy the fact that they have chosen to practice more? Yeah, I, I feel like I have a different look to getting stuck in practice since I was such a horrendous practicer. I absolutely, I think it took until I was like 21 to really understand the process. And since then, Um, It has stayed very true, but I try and present whatever is, maybe they're like stuck on a a passage, which is normally the case. And then they kind of get down on themselves that they just can't get it. So I, my favorite thing to do is just try and come at that passage just in so many different methods that hopefully there's one because everyone learns just so differently and they're understanding. They might think they understand what you're instructing them to do, but really they're just going through the motions. So I just keep coming at it as as many different angles as possible um, to see what connects. And it just, my favorite thing in teaching is when whatever I've said really resonates for that one moment, and it just starts to come together and they realize that there's a way out of that hump of practice. And they're like, something has clicked. Um, Cause I think that's one of the biggest skills you need to have as an educator is you can't give up and you can't just give them the same helpful information. Cause maybe that doesn't make sense. Um, I feel like that has happened in uh, my own studies. And that's one of the reasons I was inspired to even continue into pedagogy because I, I feel like every student has the same um, abilities. You just have to be able to unlock them in different ways. Very nice. So there are a number, as you know, a number of cello teachers around the country, around the world, who were trained on cello 
And whatever experience they had in also learning how to teach, they don't necessarily have a cello pedagogy degree. And then on top of that, what is it? Four books worth of Suzuki training. All, now all the way through eight. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Excellent. Almost there. All right. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, how, I mean, because you teach ages, I mean, five to 70. Yes. Right. Literally. But I'll bet, for example, that you find applications of the Suzuki approach to adult learners. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do, do you have a, I guess part of what I'm asking is like, how do you go about sizing up where a particular cellist is in terms of not only their current playing, but where they're, where they're planning to go or what their strengths and weaknesses are, regardless of whether they're, they're uh, young or old? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a modified Suzuki teacher. I have a couple of younger students that have definitely come through the traditional um, learning by ear and then they, you know, just learning the reading the notes slightly later. But most of my students come to me not in that route. So my when I'm assessing a student to kind of figure out where they are, um, if they're comfortable, you know, definitely have them play something for me. And I'm looking not only at their technique, because I mean, everything comes from the fundamentals. So that is always what I'm looking for first. And then it's, if you can tell if they're truly hearing the music. Um, I think, you know, a lot of students come into a lesson, they're like, I'm ready to start the next piece. I'm like, great, can you hum it for me? And they've never listened to it. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you play a piece of music? You don't know what it sounds like. You know, how do you how do you start from that? So I think having um, just that equal balance of looking for their fundamentals of technique and their tool belt of skills. And then if they're really understanding the music itself, if that makes sense. All right. All right. And you play um you're an avid orchestral player and chamber music player i'm curious how for example did in in the past two years of course we all took a hit in our orchestral playing i i saw you kept uh, a chamber music component and then you got connected with the covid cello project how did that come about I am part of a couple of like just the different cello like groups on Facebook mm -hmm. and I saw that the first I think the first three had been posted already and I was just hankering for like I said earlier that symphonic sound there's only so much sitting in the room by yourself hearing yourself that one person can take so I um I I just jumped in and it was so so interesting to not only hear the finished product and see all of the different hands that had come in to perform this piece but um, just the community it created and it's like okay we're all going through this same thing but we're it's it's going to be fine because we we have music uh and it was just really great that um the coordinator tony rogers I believe I'm terrible with names, but 
he uh, arranged all the music just because he wanted to do this for people. Uh, so the things kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, I mean, I think the last one that I did just because things started to pick up um, for in person again was like all the little thumbnails were like, you, you didn't know it was a person, which, but just the sound was, was really great. So it kind of helped, helped me stay sane um, amidst playing by yourself in a room. So it was just a great outlet during that time. Yeah. Let's hear it for sanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great. You mentioning uh, Scott Cook. It was funny. He was just not long ago. He came to Fort Atkinson where both my boys play cello and he was playing as part of the joke 2.0. And I didn't know he was, he was a part of that. And it, it is, it's just great to see, I don't know. It's just great always to see various people that you either think of performers and you find out they're great teachers, or you think of as teachers and you find out they're great performers. And, um, but I mean, it's like we proactively cultivate these two things overlapping. And then even when we have to undergo something like the last two years of COVID, we're not going to stop with either. <laughs> All right. One other thought, I Sheboygan, when you mentioned it, it strikes me, I wonder if this strikes you as well, but out of various places in the region, when I think about the kind of like the level of musical um, enthusiasm per capita, if you will. There are some places where they might have a population that's this big, but only only this much kind of artistic engagement or, or some such thing. But Sheboygan strikes me as pretty darn high, unusually high on the scale of um, aesthetic connection. I mean, I'm talking about just the times I've been up there to their all-city orchestra, for example, and just the number of people who are part of music programs in the school. And then, of course, things like the Sheboygan Symphony and and Quartet. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's actually come up a lot in conversation lately because the Sheboygan Symphony is searching for, uh, we have four finalists for conducting candidate. And they're mostly from um, like Ohio Quad Cities area. And every time someone comes in, I mean, they're just like, how? How is so much culture and arts culture in this tiny lakeside, you know, environment. Um, I, I just feel like there's something in the Sheboygan community that just knows to honor the arts. And it's so amazing. And it makes sense that growing up in that community, I was inspired to continue. I mean, we have the Kohler Arts Center um, that yeah. has opened a new portion of that. We have great artists coming through it's it's real it is really interesting um and i i hope it never changes but yeah when these candidates are coming in they're just astounded that there's this passion in the community to keep it going and keep it growing so a tradition i am quite proud of (laughs) excellent excellent yeah i I don't see any signs of it changing if if anything i was going to say i i hope that 
other communities can learn from and, and kind of vicariously just kind of take that recipe and apply it to themselves directly. All right. Well, so then what additional projects or performances do you have coming up either in the very near future or, or later in 2022? Nothing too elaborate. Uh, we have one final candidate for our Sheboygan Symphony, and then we all get to vote. So that is very exciting. Um, so our main thing, um, since most of my playing is symphonic and not like in a recital setting, uh, mm -hmm. is going to be determining who this new candidate is and what they're going to bring to the area. I mean, it's been such an exciting process, um, and it's just been great to be a part of it as a musician and also like um, as a re representative on our board. So it's I've got my my hands in it, and it's really really cool to see. You know, the audience get to meet these conductors we selected. So, um, and then my my studio has their big spring recital in a couple of weeks. So we're just buckling down. It's also you know audition and competition season. So they are keeping me busy, but that's okay. I being busy is what I do best. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, you know, I, I know what you mean because we're in we're in this field because we love it. And why would we take our foot off the accelerator? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, any last? Uh, I mean, of course, you the our our audience. We don't know who they are, so you can't custom tailor your comments to them. But just generally, from a pedagogical standpoint, advice for somebody about to start a weekend of very long, intensive practicing. Right, audience? <laughs> I would tell them to figure out that puzzle. And if you're stuck on something, don't, don't give up on it. Ch try something different. Um, and, and just stay positive. Outstanding. I love it. All right. Well, everybody, good luck with your practicing, and we'll see you this time next Friday. And thank you so much, Lindsay. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you.